Fold. So it's been a minute since we dropped an episode. Uh, we had a lot of retreats in November, and um, and now we're just trying to get together to be able to record the Christmas special. But in the meantime, I gave a talk on the liturgy that I thought you guys might enjoy. This was a talk I gave to a bunch of uh, volunteers of ours here before they started the year um, with their confirmation students and things like that. And we just thought we'd um, uh, talk about the liturgy and hopefully... You'll enjoy it and uh, get something out of it. All right. God bless you guys. Have a very Merry Christmas uh, and Happy New Year. And I hope you're having a blessed Advent. We'll see you guys in a bit. Bye. Are we ready? Are we clear on all the things? Can we pray? Let's go ahead and pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this community you've gathered. Lord, I ask you to bless all these volunteers for all the sacrifices that they're, that they're offering this year to be with our teens, to pray for our teens, to walk alongside them. Lord, I ask you to give them your spirit, your strength, your courage. But most importantly, Lord, I ask you to give them your love so the teens whom we serve this year can encounter you, your voice, your heart so they can know you and love you. But not for our glory, but for your own, as we pray. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so we're going to dive right into this thing. And the concept that I want to begin with is this idea of worship, right? Worship is a, um, I got my fancy whiteboard. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Look, I actually stole this from the choir director. Shh, don't tell him. But uh, he left it out, so it's fair game. All right, so uh, worship. What is worship? Worship is a compound word that we developed that basically means worth-ship, right? The relationship we have between a thing that we give value that we give high value. That's what worship is. Whenever we're placing a large portion of our value, of our time, of ourselves into a thing, we are giving worth to that thing. We are essentially worshiping that thing, right? And so obviously, there's really only one thing that kind of commands worth and value, and that is the one thing that our hearts yearn for, right? There's never enough knowledge. There's never enough fun. There's never enough love. There's only an infinite, right? The infinite, the being that is beyond all things is the only thing that is ultimately worth our worship. Yet in our culture, like, because we don't live in a, in, in a we live in kind of a post-Christian culture. So God's not kind of permeated inside of our culture. Yet worship still happens. And you can see it all over the place because we make our identity and our value be tied to the thing that we give worth to. Maybe it's being a Republican or being a Democrat. Maybe it's being part of this particular sports team. Maybe it's being the the CEO of this particular job. Maybe that's the thing that we're holding in our identity and giving our ultimate worth to. That's the first thing that I want to toss back for discussion inside your small groups, right? What has been your experience of worship, right? I know for myself, like the biggest thing that I struggle with is like 
I have like massive rejection issues, which is why I'm so good on stage, but terrible in one-on-one conversations, right? Because I have massive rejection issues. So like the, I can really easily put all of my, my worth or my, my uh, self-identity into like my wife or my kids, and I can really make them the pinnacle of all the things. And they can easily become an idol for me. Or another aspect of that, because again, because of the same kind of whole struggle with interpersonal relationships and fear of rejection, I can put my worth in the things that I know. And I can very easily put my education and my knowledge and my book smarts and create that as an idol for myself and put all of my worth and value inside of that thing, right? That's for myself. And so you guys can talk about that for yourselves in your small groups, or you can go ahead and talk about where you've seen it. Like, if you're like, I don't know these people, I don't got to share that kind of stuff with them. That's fine too. Talk about where you've seen it in the world, maybe on social media. I don't know. Have you ever been on Twitter? It's a terrible place. But yeah, people are worshiping all kinds of stuff there, right? So go ahead and, and talk about that. I'll give you about eight minutes. Ready, set, go. All right. So here's the thing. Here's what I've noticed about the things that we worship in our modern culture. They fall into three primary categories. Those categories are entertainment. Perhaps it's, perhaps it's a fandom or a, uh, maybe we just are addicted to anger. And so we like Twitter. And so that's entertaining to us. You know, maybe, maybe that's a thing. I don't know. Um, so, so entertainment, education, we can put a value in like working and, and knowing things and being smart and those, those kinds of things we can put, and we can make that our worth. And lastly, emotivism, things that make us feel good about ourselves, right? Those are the things we tend to worship. So maybe it's a, uh, a, a person, a relationship, or whatever it happens to be, or a particular star that we're like, they were so good in this movie, and, and pop, well, K-pop is just so amazing. Just, <laughs> I'm not calling anybody out. All right, <laughs> All right so may, maybe it's one of those three things, right? But those are the things that we tend to worship in our world. But here's our cultural problem. The mass does not fit into any of those categories. The mass is not for entertainment. The mass is not for education. And the mass is not to make you feel good about yourself. The one place where we can objectively worship something that's actually worth our worship is the one place our culture is like, nah, you can't worship there. That's why we're like, mass is boring. I don't get anything out of it. How many of you guys have ever heard that or even said that? Or like, like, yeah, right? Because we put our worth in entertainment, education, and emotivism. But that's not where God's present. I mean, there's aspects of God there, obviously, because he created all those things. But that's not where we can give our worship, okay? The liturgy can be best described as, and it started being described this way, like maybe in the 1920s. And Pope uh, Benedict XVI took it up in a book called uh, The Spirit of the Liturgy, by which this talk is titled. Uh, that's, you guys are, if you guys want to be nerds, you can go ahead and get that book, The Spirit of the Liturgy by uh, Pope Benedict. It's a wonderful book. It's actually a follow-up to a book by another priest um, called Romano Guardini, also titled The Spirit of the Liturgy. If you go Googled either of those books and read them, they're wonderful. All right, so... Um, he, the, the, the liturgy was kind of likened to play, but not just any kind of play, like children's play. Why? Well, because children's play, it's a, a step out 
of the rest of the world. It's like it's, 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 a, it's a universe in and of itself, children's play. And children's play has rules and has some kind of like objective, even though there's like no real purpose to it, it seems, whenever you watch children at play. But they are in this, and the rules let you know they're more, rather than being um, prohibitive, they're more inviatory, right? That's the point of the rules in children's play. Because if you have rules in children's play, other children can be like, how do I play? How can I participate? Well, we have rules to be able to tell you, this is how you play, right? And, what, and as long as children's play says focuses in on the intrinsic goods of the, chi- of the children's play, of the er- internal goods of the children's play, more children can participate in it and the more fun it goes, right? Whenever children's play gets corrupted is whenever we, we as adults start grasping onto the external goods of children's play. You know, I think of like um, uh, kids' sports, right? Kids' sports are great because they do a lot of things for kids. But whenever an adult grabs a hold of children's sports and they're like, hey, this can A, make me money, B, make me famous, or C, I could just like get a bunch of honor because I'm going to dominate that field by using these children, right? That's whenever that gets corrupted. Same thing for liturgy and mass, and we'll get to all this stuff here in a second. But think about that in the context of liturgy, right? Liturgy is, in a, in a, is something completely other than the world that is around us, right? It has particular rules, and the rules of liturgy are not arbitrary, and they're not just there so that way we can say, like, you need to do it this way or you're doing it wrong. They're inviatory by nature. If we have a particular rules and a particular pattern we follow in liturgy, then people can enter into it. People can participate in it. It's welcoming. I can teach you how to play it. Right? That's, what's, that's what liturgy is for. The problem is, whenever we take liturgy and we try to make that our personal devotion because we have no personal devotion, Right? Because if we have no personal devotion outside of the liturgy, like if we don't pray every day, if we're not reading scripture, then we expect the liturgy to take place of all of that for us. So there, if it doesn't meet all of my tastes and my personal uh, worship style, then all of a sudden it's a bad liturgy. But that's not the case. The liturgy is written as it is because God asked for the liturgy. God literally said, this is how you're going to worship me. And we're like, all right, cool. We can do that. We can follow that pattern. We can, we can chase after that essence, right? And so that's what we're going to be diving into today. And this rep- repetitive nature of the liturgy, a lot of times people are like, that's what makes it boring. We need to liven it up a little bit. But no, the repetitive nature, again, it's meant to be inviatory. So that way people can enter into it regardless of culture, regardless of knowledge, regardless of education, regardless of anything, all people can be invited to enter into it. It's a very simple pattern. Saint, um, not Saint, uh, maybe one day, but G.K. Chesterton had written in his book, Orthodoxy, if you've never read that, that's also a wonderful book. He had wrote this about the repetitiveness of the liturgy. He said, because children have abundant vitality, because they are, are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again, and the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. If you guys have kids, you guys understand this concept, right? Do it again, do it again, right? For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony, but perhaps, perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. 
It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. We have sinned and grown old. That's why mass is boring. We can't exalt in monotony because we don't understand what God has put together here. So that's what we're going to do today. And we're going to do it in two parts. The first part is I'm going to help, help us all understand in a more deeper level the mass as sacrifice and how that's tied to worship. And then secondarily, what at full active and conscious participation actually looks like in the context of a, sacrifice, a sacrificial worship. That's the goal for today. So that way ourselves, we can enter in more fully into the liturgy and we could teach our children and our teens and those that we lead to enter in more fully into liturgy. Okay, so worship has always been tied to sacrifice. It still is in our culture, right? We give our money, our time and value to the things that we worship, right? Whether it's a sports ball or whether it's a person or whether whatever it happens to be. That's what we're, that's what we're giving our time, money and our, and our um, basically personalities to, our value to, right? That is intuitive in our human nature. Throughout all cultures, through all history, sacrifice has always been tied to worship. Always, right? And it's always been like, I need to give something of good value to me, to the gods, in order to get something in return. Kind of like a reciprocal relationship, the idea was in, in, in uh, um, ancient cultures, is that somehow, if I offer the sacrifice of this lamb, of this harvest, of this whatever, to, go, to the gods then I'm going to get something in return. Maybe that means that I'm going to have uh, wealth or maybe I'll be protected from my enemies or maybe I'll be able to have children, whatever it happens to be. That was the thing, right? Some kind of reciprocal relationship. I give God this and God blesses me with that. That was the idea here in all cultures. And then so God, he takes this idea that all these cultures have that's embedded in us that somehow we know that we've got to sacrifice, that we've got to offer sacrifice to God and God says, yes, you do, but you have it ordered wrong, and let me show you how to do it. That's what the entire Old Testament is about. The entire Old Testament is about like, okay, you guys have screwed up this idea of worship. Let me correct it. Because what did we do with worship, right? We're like, we're going to go ahead and give these things of value to us, and, and maybe the, the higher the value, the more blessings I'm going to give. Well, what's the highest value to me? Well, me, right? <laughs> so I can like, offer myself as a sacrifice, but I don't get anything out of that. So what's the next valuable thing to me? My kid, right? So I'm going to offer my kid as a, as a sacrifice. And so lots of cultures were doing that. They were offering children as sacrifices to God because it's pure and innocent. And it's the most precious thing to you. And if you want big blessings, you got to make big sacrifice. God says, no, you have this wrong. Let me order it correctly for you. And so you look, look at the Old Testament. And as we walk through the Old Testament, pay attention to how God has ordered sacrifice here and how, how he's invited us to participate in that sacrifice. So first you have Adam and Eve, right? You have Adam and Eve in the garden. You're like, David, there's no sacrifice there. No, there is sacrifice there. There's an important sacrifice there and it's offered to Adam and Eve. What's, what's the commandment? Thou shalt not in, in the garden. Everybody's whispering. Eat the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. This table's like, I know the answer, but I don't want to say it out loud. Right? <laughs> to, to don't 
eat from the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, right? That was the prohibition. That's the sacrifice. Very, very simple. Adam has kind of something else that's put upon him as well. It says, Adam, here's what I want you to do. I want you to um, till and keep the garden. He's got to do some stuff. He's got to do some work. He's got to till and keep the garden. The, garden the, the, the word keep there also means to protect the garden. Well, protect the garden from what? That means potential harm is there. So there's sacrifice available for Adam to make, right? And then so what's, what's that uh, protection coming from? Well, we see that in, in Genesis chapter three, don't we? What happens? What happens in Genesis chapter three? What's the protection that Adam fails to give in Genesis chapter three? He fails to protect Eve from the serpent. We know this story, right? Because what happens? The serpent comes in and the serpent talks to who? He talks to Eve. Where was Adam? Football game? Watching sports ball? Already, already. He's like, whatever, honey, you go do your thing. You go talk to snakes, that's cool. I'm going to be over here. Scripture says he was with her. Because it says Eve took the apple, ate of it, and gave some to her husband who was with her. He was standing here during this entire conversation with his mouth closed like a dummy. All right, men, that's, that's, that's a message for y'all. All right? Look, it, always, it always bothers me whenever I, we, we do all this ministry stuff, and I'm like, where are all the Catholic men at? Because we have, we have wonderful women who are volunteering in ministry, but so few men. We're all keeping our mouth shut while, while the serpent is just taking over, taking over our culture, taking over our women, taking over our children. Oh, my goodness. Right. Anyway, that's another talk for another time. <laughs> all right, so... We have, we have Eve here up against this serpent that Adam, perhaps maybe he was scared of the serpent because the word that's described there describes is, is a Hebrew word that we think nice little snake, but it's a Hebrew word that, descri- that can describe also something massive and scary and terrifying, right? And so maybe we see this, this picture, not as like the cute little drawing that you saw in a children's book of a snake, but more like Michelangelo's, right? I don't know if you've seen Michelangelo's drawing of uh, the temptation of Adam and Eve, but that snake was buff. I had never seen so many abs on a snake before. I would have been scared too. I don't even know how you do that. Like that, I've never seen, Schwarzenegger didn't have that in his, big, in his best days, you know? It was wild. And so, so you have this, this image right here. Now you have this giant serpent standing up against Eve and talking to Eve. And Adam is supposed to intervene. Protect the garden, Adam. But that's a snake with abs, Jesus, or God. Like, come on. Like, where does that happen? I'm terrified, right? So he stays quiet. And what happens? Because of the failure of sacrifice, suffering and death enters into the world. That's why in the New Testament, it's called the sin of Adam. Even if Eve was the one who ate the apple first or the fruit, whatever you want to call it, right? It was the sin of Adam. And to combat this death and suffering, what does God do? Who offers the first sacrifice in the Bible? God does. Yeah. What does he do? Because you have Adam and Eve, right? What do they make for themselves? They made themselves loincloths, right? They're, so they're hiding with like leaves and stuff like that. And then God says, no, I'm going to make you new cloths, even though you've separated yourselves from me. I'm going to make you cloths of leather. 
something had to die so that they might live. Because sin and death entered into the world, something needed to die so that they might live. And that begins the first pattern of what sacrifice means in the Old Testament. Sacrifice isn't to compound the death and suffering that's in the world. Sacrifice is meant to to show and bring in new life into the world. This thing had to die so that they might live, right? And then chapter four comes the next offering of sacrifice in in the Bible. Did you guys know that? And and at Genesis chapter four comes the next offering of sacrifice. Who's making that offering? Cain and Abel, who did it first? Cain. Cain first brings his sacrifice to God. You guys know this story? If you guys don't know this story, this is a fantastic story. You need to read it. You need to commit it to memory. So Cain brings his sacrifice to God, but what does he bring? He brings the, uh, the part of his harvest, right? His grain. So he brings part of his harvest to God. And then Abel's like, that seems like a good idea. And so Abel brings what? The first, the firstlings, the first of his best of his flock, of his, of his uh, cattle, right? He brings that for offering, the first and the best. And we know the story. Whose offering was accepted? Abel's offering. Now, people go back and forth as to why or why not. Some, the, the language seems to imply that what Cain was offering was just maybe from his abundance or maybe just part of his, what he's offering, while Abel was offering the best of what he had. And so maybe there's, there's a little bit of that in there. But here's the key thing that we need to recognize. God did not offer any sacrifice that anybody was willing to take. God offered a specific sacrifice. I mean, already in that chapter, God says, this sacrifice is good. This sacrifice is not. Already God's saying, this is how you offer worship to me. This is not how you offer worship to me. Man, how does that translate to our culture? What do we try to do with the liturgy all the time? We've spent decades trying to make the liturgy in our image. I like this kind of music. I like it when the priest tells jokes. So what? <laughs> That's not the point of the liturgy. There's, there's a value in the sacrifice itself. The sacrifice is the point. We cannot make the liturgy in our image. It's about us conforming to the liturgy, not about the liturgy conforming to us. That's what Cain couldn't get. And what does God say to Cain? God says, Cain, hey, you can be acceptable. You can be accepted. But sin is prowling around. Which are you going to choose? Does Cain turn around and offer something acceptable? No. Fine. I'll kill my brother. That escalated quickly, didn't it? messed up people in the Bible. All right. But we see this again, right? This idea of like God accepting one particular type of worship and rejecting another type of uh, type of worship. Think about the golden calf. We know this story, right? What's happening there. Moses is up on Mount Sinai, literally getting instructions on worship from God, right? He's hanging out there, but the, all the people are down below and they're just there. They're like, Hey, Moses has been gone a really long time. Aaron, Aaron's Moses brother. He's like, Moses has been gone a really long time. Um, can you just kind of make God for us? I'm like, that'd be cool, right? Like we should, we should just worship God, right? This, this way. And here's the, here's the fundamental thing right there is they didn't believe that the golden calf 
was like some cow God. That's not what they believed. They believed it was Yahweh who brought them out of Egypt. This is the image of Yahweh who brought us out of Egypt. So they're still worshiping Yahweh in a sense, but saying that this, this image here that we've created is him. Is him in the, what does God do? Says, no, this is not how you worship. And so the priesthood was taken away from the people and given particularly to the Levites. Because this is, this is not how you worship. You don't get to pick and choose. One of the most interesting symbols of worship in the Old Testament, which we, need, which we need to hold on to to understand worship at all in the New Testament, is the sacrifice of Isaac with Abraham. You guys know this story? Genesis chapter 22. Another one that we should commit to memory as Catholics, right? Genesis chapter 22. So we've been following Abraham since Genesis, well, really the end of Genesis chapter 11, but he kind of primarily comes on scene in Gen- the beginning of Genesis chapter 12. We've been following him from Genesis chapter 12, now all the way to Genesis chapter 22. And if you guys know anything about Abraham during that time, he kind of sucks at following God. Like he's just really bad at it. Like he's like, God's like, okay, I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you children. I'm going to give you a manifold blessing. All this stuff is going to come to you, Abraham. Abraham's like, cool, that's awesome. And, and then what does he do whenever he's in Egypt? He's like, he's like oh, this is not my wife. Um, this is like my sister because like if she's my wife, you might kill me and take her as your bride. And God's like, no, don't you trust me? You don't have to lie to people and pretend this is your wife. But he couldn't get that. He does it twice. And then when he couldn't have, when he couldn't have children with Sarah, right? It's like, oh, oh, she's barren. She's, she's past the age of giving children. Hagar's not. Let's have children with her. Ishmael, right? God's like, no, you're screwing this up, Abraham. For 10 chapters, that's Abraham's life. Basically, trying to follow God and screwing up all the time. That's my life, by the way. <laughs> trying to follow God and screwing up all the time, right? But Genesis chapter 2, something is intrinsically different about Abraham. Genesis chapter 2, God calls out to Abraham, or Genesis chapter 22, God calls out to Abraham, and Abraham says, here I am. Fancy Hebrew word that a soldier would use to their commanding officer. It's like, I'm ready. Let's do this. Yes, I'm here. That's what he's saying. First time Abraham ever used this phrase. And God's like, hey, I want you to take your son Isaac, your only beloved son, and want you to take him up on this mountain that I will show you, and want you to offer him as a burnt offering on that mountain. Abraham's like, let's go. I hate the kid anyway. No, I'm just kidding. No, he's, <laughs> no, he's his only beloved son. And he's, he takes him over to the mountain. And, and then later on in the New Testament, Abraham will be praised for this because it says that he is the first who believed in the resurrection. Because we get this peculiar verse when they get to Mount Moriah and God says, that's the place where Abraham turns to his, to his servants that were there and said, me and the boy, we're going to go yonder to worship. And then we will come back to you. So Abraham knew that he was going to supposed to take his son over there and sacrifice him. But Abraham firmly believed that I don't know what's going to happen over there, but he and I are coming back. That's why it was credited to him as resurrection in the New Testament. He believed in the resurrection. He's the father of faith. So we know the story, right? He goes up there and you got Isaac, which had to be an awkward conversation. Isaac's walking up there with the mountain. He said, I got the knife. I got the torch. I got the wood. Where's, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says this, another very peculiar Hebrew phrase, God will provide himself a sacrifice. That's awkwardly worded, isn't it? God will provide himself a sacrifice. 
And so they get to the spot and we know the rest of the story. He doesn't get sacrificed, right? The angel calls out Abraham, Abraham, and he gives that same Hebrew phrase. Here I am. I'm ready. Follow one instructions. Let's do this thing. It says, don't lay a hand on the boy. And then what does he see? He sees a ram caught in the thicket. And he sacrifices the ram. And the ram becomes the substitute for the sacrifice of the son. The first substitutionary sacrifice in scripture. The model by which all other sacrifices in scripture will take place. That this thing is going to be sacrificed in place of that thing. Not just merely so something else can live, but so, so, so that this particular person might have life. Not so merely that life can be better, but that this particular person might live beyond this, right? Substitutionary sacrifice. This in place of that. This dies so you don't have to. Not just about blessing, not just about good life, right? I always think about... Uh, um, the conversation on the way down with, with Isaac is like, what was that, dad? <laughs> That's got to be a way more awkward conversation going on. You know what they called that place in Hebrew where Isaac was supposed to be sacrificed? They called it Yahweh Yiri, which means Yahweh, God, will provide. You know where that place was? Mount Moriah in the city of Salem. So it became known as Yahweh Yiri Salem or Yahweh Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So literally, where someone's only beloved son was supposed to be offered as sacrifice and where something else was offered to sacrifice of his place was in the exact same place where God's only beloved son will be offered as sacrifice so we might have life. Very interesting connection, Genesis chapter 22 to, to, come to, to hear now, right? All right, so... This is, becomes the model for all of the Old Testament sacrifice. Now, the temple sacrifices were all about this. Like, we get that from the Passover, right? The Passover says, okay, you remember this thing that ha- happened with, uh, um, with Abraham in Genesis? We're going to turn it into formal worship. This is how we're going to offer worship to God. And we see it the first time in the Passover in Exodus. What happens in Exodus? What's the Passover? Doorposts and lintels. Absolutely. That's where we get the term Passover because it was the angel of death coming into Egypt to take the firstborn of everything, of all the people, of all the flock, everything. Like the firstborn is going to die, right? And God says, in order for death to pass over, take a, take a lamb, an unblemished lamb, sacrifice it, take its blood and put it on the lintels and the doorpost. I always really think that's interesting because whenever you physically do that to paint, what are you doing? You take the paintbrush, you put it over the lintels and the doorposts. You're making the sign of the cross. I'm like, oh my goodness, it's right there. Oh, anyway, that's just me. <laughs> All right, so you're, you, you have this, this, this now this image that death is going to pass over through this sacrifice. And God says, that's the sacrifice I'm instituting in the temple. And temple worship is going to be surrounding this one Passover sacrifice. This one sacrifice where this death is going to be passing over the firstborn. Who's the firstborn? We are the firstborn. Firstborn children of Israel, Right? And then now we're through adoption because Jesus, but we'll get there, right? So that's what all these Old Testament sacrifices are. There's something about these sacrifices that are happening in the temple that's bringing life. So death is passing over all of this, right? All right. But we knew fundamentally that this was incomplete. That's why we had to sacrifice every single year 
after year, after year, after year, for every single sin, after sin, after sin, after sin. Because we knew that something about this substitutionary sacrifice of a lamb, a lamb is not a person. This is not the highest good that I can offer. But I also can't offer myself because then I'm just dead. But I also can't offer my child because God said don't. And he showed me that we don't do that. So we're like, we got to keep doing this over and over and over. We knew that this is fundamentally not perfect. There's something missing here. And then Jesus comes along. And what does Jesus say? Well, Jesus says a lot of interesting things. One of the first things that's, uh, that comes out of actually the mouth of John the Baptist when he sees Jesus What does he say? Behold the lamb of God. What's a lamb used for? Sacrifice. Well, that'd be a fun game. Every single time I say sacrifice, you guys say sacrifice. All right. (laughs) All right. That's what the lamb is used for, right? What what else in John's gospel? Jesus says it's John chapter two. Whenever he turns over the uh, the money changers in in the temple, he says, you tear down this temple and in three days, I'll rebuild it. But what was he talking about? talking about the temple of his body. So now we have Jesus as the lamb and the temple, the thing that's sacrificed and the place of sacrifice. And then what does Jesus go out and do? He goes out and he takes everything that's broken. You, you're broken on this mat right? Your friends lower you down from the, from the ceiling in Mark's gospel, right? You're like, he's got this paralytic guy. He's on this mat for like ever. And what, is, what does Jesus say to him? Your sins are forgiven, which I would have been like, thanks. Do you notice anything else? Right? But he's like, I'm going to heal that. And that made everybody mad. Well, who can forgive sins but God alone? He's like, yeah, duh. Right? But just to show you that I can, get up, take your mat, and walk. He's touching and healing everything that's broken. That's beauty of Jesus. When Jesus touches a leper, Jesus doesn't get unclean. Jesus doesn't get leprosy. The leper gets Jesus, right? That's what's happening. Jesus is taking all the brokenness upon himself, and he's fixing it. What's the last thing he's got to touch? He's got to touch our suffering. He's got to touch our death. Not in order to take it away, but to fix it because it's broken. Because God's not the God of destruction, the God of creation. I'm going to make something new. And so what does Jesus do on the cross? The epitome of suffering, because wisdom increases suffering, and Jesus is wisdom incarnate. He experiences suffering beyond any other person. He experiences the, the most horrific death the death of the innocent because he is the most innocent. So death and suffering to its max, he lets it touch him and death and suffering. Don't overcome Jesus. Death and suffering get Jesus, right? That's what resurrection is. So Jesus rises from suffering and he connects this, all this thing. He's like, okay, from this sacrifice is going to come new life resurrection. And from this sacrifice is going to come something new, this indwelling of the spirit, because I have died 
and risen and go to the Father, now I give the Spirit to you that I can now indwell in you. So what has happened to me happens to you. When you die, you rise up. When you die, you rise up. That's why Hebrews says, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. Because what's the best way that we can offer ourselves? Obviously as martyrs, but we don't live in that world right now. Not yet. We don't live in that world right now, right? Where we can offer ourselves as martyrs, but we can offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. We die to ourselves and we rise up to new life in God. That is how we do it. So how does Jesus say you do it? You touch all the things that are broken. You bring healing to all those things that are broken. You're doing that as confirmation leaders, by the way. I don't know if you guys know, but our teens are broken. Like COVID has broken everybody, but man, our teens are broken. Like, I don't know if you get to spend a lot of time with teenagers, but there's a lot of hurt there. There's a lot of suffering that's taking place. There's so much brokenness there. And you're bringing Jesus into that. That's why I say pray. Because if we're not praying, if we're not offering sacrifice, we're not doing anything, right? All right. So now this is how Jesus offering is a sacrifice, right? He sacrifices himself and he transforms himself into resurrection, right? Through the sacrifice. So sacrifice now changes Jesus into the Jesus that walked around on the earth to resurrected Jesus. And resurrected Jesus gives us the spirit so we can do the same thing. You have become a new creation. You are made new in Christ. Christ lives in you and now you live differently. You are something else ontologically. The fancy theological word we give to that is, is a um, ontological sign, like a, 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 a um, indelible mark on your soul. That's the fancy words that we give to that, right? At baptism, you're given an indelible mark. You're marked for Christ. Okay, so we're marked for Christ now, right? Sacrifice now has not just brought death upon something, but has changed it, transformed it, so that way it can have union with God. Okay, so now we're getting this. So we killed something, it is no longer on this earth, and it's basically, you could say, in union with God. Now you can be in union with God without being burnt, without being offered as a sacrifice through Jesus' sacrifice and the indwelling. Now you can be in union with God. That's what means to make sacrifice. Sacrifice is to say to make something holy. I've been made holy. I've been made set apart. I've been made in union with God. Living sacrifice, baptism, right? But it's not just for us. God wants the redemption of all of creation. So now how does God redeem all of creation? Well, he, de- he redeemed us by becoming us and dying for us. How does he redeem all of creation? By becoming bread and being united to us. So God's, God's now sanctifying just regular matter after humanity, matter. And then what else? The last thing to sacrifice, the last thing to bring back into union with God is time. If it's ourselves and our space, and now time needs to be sacrificed, needs to be made into union with God, made holy for God. So what do we do? What do the first apostles do? We need to offer sacrifice, the agape meal, on the Lord's day, the day of resurrection. Not on a Thursday, although we could do that. But what's the important day? 
It's the restitution of the, it's the restitution of the Sabbath, the redemption of the Sabbath sacrifice here now on this day. All right, before we jump into the rest of this stuff, I went way too long on that. I'm going to give you a little bit of of conversation to have here, right? So the conversation is now, this is Jesus' sacrifice, and we're called to be a living sacrifice, which you guys are already doing, right? This is a part of what you guys are already doing by offering yourself, right? You're offering yourself to another person, namely of teens right now. What has been other I guess, images of sacrifice in your life or other options of sacrifice in your life or other times that you've seen sacrifice in your life. Maybe you could talk about a parent who offered themselves for you with no benefit to them. Like I always think about that in uh, in the terms of like um, parents and teens because teens tend to like forget that they require their parents for lots of things because like they're learning to grow as their own person. So they're learning growing apart from their parents. But at the same time, their parent is how they, you know, live. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so they, they end taking up their parent for granted and the parent just sacrifices it all. Well, the good parent does. Some bad parents are like, you terrible child, I'm just gonna throw you out and where's all your clothes and everything. Yeah, I'm gonna take all that stuff for you. But you know, uh, but that, we offer that sacrifice. We're like, yeah, yeah, I know. But whenever you're 30, you're gonna look back and be like, oh, I had a great mom, you know? All right, have that conversation, small group. I'll give you about eight minutes. All right, so we know that Jesus is, is sacrificed, is transforming what's here and bringing it into communion with God, right? That's what he's doing. And he lets us do it by the indwelling through the spirit. So we indwell in the spirit, we can be made holy and bring us into God, right? He does it with creation by becoming part of creation, the Eucharist. He indwells in that so that we consume that and it's, a, it's a brought in back in union with God. Now time is a sacrifice of time. He brought it back in with God. That's offering the sacrifice on the Lord's day, all right? Sacrificing time and all that. Okay. So how then, because the church calls us to what's called full, active, and conscious participation in the liturgy. What does that mean? Because what's the sacrifice that's taking part in the liturgy? Well, we're sacrificing a little bit of stuff, right? We're sacrificing our time. We're sacrificing our attention, maybe our preference of music or whatever that that we're offering sacrifice, you know, these small little sacrifices. But what's the big sacrifice of mass? It's a representation of Calvary. It's a representation of what Jesus did on the cross. We are, it's, it's as if, because God is sanctifying time here, it's as if time is folding in on itself and we're back, back on Calvary. We're in that moment, that once for all sacrifice that replaced all substitutionary sacrifices. We're present there. So it's Jesus is the one that's offering the sacrifice and we're participating in that. So what Jesus is doing, we're just like, yeah, go Jesus, right? That, that's kind of our role, isn't it? We're just like there. That's why full, full conscious participation in the, in the, in the uh, sacrifice of the mass, it always reminds me of what it looks like in, um, how many of you guys have ever seen the creation of, uh, of man on the Sistine Chapel or pictures of it? Uh, the painting, yeah, you guys know what I'm talking about. The, uh, where where God, is the, God is reaching out to the creation of man, right? For we have Adam that's being created. But we, we, know that, we know that design because God is outstretched like this, right? He's, he's pointing out and he's reaching out to Adam. But what's Adam doing? He's leaned back on, uh, on like a cloud or something. And he can't even hold his own arm up, right? And it's like, it's all limp too. It's like barely even pointing. He's got his leg propped up to hold his arm up, right? Like it's the most minimal amount of participation possible. That is offset mass. That's why the precept of the church tells us what's, what's our responsibility when it comes to mass. Show up. 
every Sunday, every holiday of obligation. That's our primary function is to show up because the sacrifice that's happening is not just for holy people, not just for smart people who get the theology behind it, not just for like monks and all these other people. The sacrifice that's behind it is for everybody because God is for everybody. And God is transforming everybody anew in baptism and in the Eucharist and all the sacraments that we're participating in. It's not just for people. It, that's, why I, that's why I hate it whenever we, like, I don't like the fact that we have a, a separate cry room, right? Because the children are meant to be in liturgy. I don't like it whenever people say, like, we should have a child's liturgy for them. To, no, I don't I actually don't even like the idea of a teen mass. We, we have kind of like a, like, teen gifted mass. But I don't like an idea of, like, this is where teens go to worship. No. Because the liturgy in and of itself is for everybody. Regardless of how little you are, how much you get, to figure out how smart you are. Because if it was just for the people who were smart, that means that children or the mentally disabled would have, no, would have no communion with God. And we know that that's not true. So mass is about our communion with God. And our primary function of full and active participation is showing up. Like, you'll see me at mass. I don't know if you guys go to mass on Saturdays, but I go to mass on Saturdays, and you'll see my, my middle son. There we go. You'll see my middle son, Isaac, who has autism. And, like, very rarely will I take him out of the liturgy. And you'll see him. Like, he'll be jumping up and down sometimes. Or, or he'll, he, he might just, like, every now and again just laugh. And the priest is like, I'm extra funny. But like, no, you're not. <laughs> but, but, you know, he'll, he'll just do those kind of things. And, but very rarely will I take him out. And that's usually only if he's going to be disrupting somebody else's worship. Well, am I going to take him out? And I'll take him out only to calm him down and bring him back in as soon as humanly possible. Because he belongs there. Because he's being sanctified too. Right? And his capacity for full and active participation is much lower than mine. So his capacity is just showing up, just showing up. Now myself, I have a little bit more of like responsibility because my capacity is a little bit higher, right? So I could, I, 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 even if we take uh, the fact of Isaac's autism out of this, my, my, my uh, almost 10 year old Joel, Right? He knows a little bit. He knows what he's, he knows his responsibilities. He knows the mass parts. He's got a little bit of a, uh, of a capacity in there, what's going on. I still got a more responsibility and higher capacity than him because I'm an adult and I've been studying this stuff. So, Mike, I'm going to make you guys super culpable because I'm going to raise your capacity level for entering into the liturgy, right? Because now I'm culpable for not entering into the sacrifice with my full and active participation according to my capacity. Little kid, low capacity. Big adult, High capacity, right? So we need to know this stuff, right? So what we're going to enter into is I'm going to, I'm going to help explain some of the things of the liturgy to help you enter into it a little bit more deeply. And the first thing that I wanted to talk about, I'm going to keep this in order so that way I don't screw up here. But the first thing I want to talk about is, is sacred images because we have a lot. I don't know if you guys have ever been to a church, but we really like, and she's like, no, nah, I've never, I never stepped. I don't know. What's, what is this church that you speak of? But we have lots of art. We're really into art. 
I don't know if you guys have noticed that we got statues, we got paintings, especially in the older churches. This is why I love going to cathedrals whenever we go out on like, I'm the, I'm the nerd whenever we go out on vacation, I'll always find the cathedral and I'm like, well, can we go visit? And then we go to the cathedral and all I do is I like talk about the art and I look at the art and all, all that stuff because that's, that's who we are as Catholics. Arts are meant to be catechisms, right? That's the point of the art. So the thing is, most of the time when we walk into a church, we're like, oh, that's just beautiful. Like, yeah, but it's not decoration. It's an icon. And what's the key difference here? Well, decoration, like something that's supposed to be decorative, you're like, that's, that's supposed to point back to the decorator, right? Oh, I made this beautiful thing. Isn't it, isn't it wonderful? Look how awesome this picture is. Look how awesome that painting is. Look how great the statue is. But an icon is supposed to be read along past the, the, past the artist to he who is beauty, to he who is perfect pure art, right? The, the original artist, the creator of all things, right? So whenever we see an icon of, let's say, St. Clair inside, inside the church, where what is she doing there? She's holding the Eucharist, right? And she's like, it's, she's positioned beautifully, but we see her, what's in front of her? Like the, the thing that stands out in front of her is the Eucharist. We're supposed to see her and see that her beauty and her power and her strength comes from her faith in the Eucharist which is supposed to lead us into prayer like hers. I want to live like her, where my beauty, my power, my strength comes from the Eucharist. Joseph's another great one. You guys ever sit on St. Joseph's side and just stare at the image of St. Joseph over there? Because what do you have here? You have this beautiful statue of St. Joseph, and not as he's, he's holding and, and caring for Jesus, but he's also presenting Jesus, right? Jesus is up there like, yeah, right? He's got his arms out. He's like, like, not that he knows karate, but he's giving you a blessing, right? So he's got his arms out and he's giving a blessing, right? And Joseph is like, yeah, this is my son. You should know him too. As a father, that's how I want to live. And I suck at it. I'm introducing Jesus to my own kids and to, to my friends and to the teens that I follow. You know, all these, all these people that, that God has bring into my life. That's, what, that's the stance that I'm supposed to take. I'm supposed to like, here is Jesus. But most of the time, I'm like, my name's David, please like me, right? You know, that's, like, that's not what Joseph is doing in that image. It's not like, look at Joseph and how beautiful he's carved. No, Joseph is like, here's Jesus, he's what's important, right? That's what the icon does. The icon stems from prayer and leads to prayer. If it's not that, then it's just a piece of art. But that's what an icon's meant to do. And that's what all of the art inside of our church is meant to do. Not just decorate the space. It's supposed to be a prayer from the artist so that prayer can be shared with you and you could learn to pray with that thing. That's why it's wonderful to have altars at home, statues at home, pieces of art at home. Not to merely decorate your house, although that's also important on a human level. But so that way you can pray in your house. You can use these pieces of art to lead you into, into deeper and fuller prayer. All right. So music. Music is super important in the liturgy. And the purpose of music in the liturgy is to kind of help us understand what we're doing, right? So there's, there's gradation of language. I talk about this all the time in, in confirmation retreats and things like that, is that we know that there's a gradation of language, okay? So the way that I talk with, like, my friends— or actually, let's start even more fundamentally. The way that I talk to myself in my head is a lot different than the way that I talk to my friends, right? And the way that I talk to my friends 
is a lot different than the way I would talk to my boss. And the way that I talk to my boss is a lot different than if I were to write something, a business letter, something formally to another person. Going to be a little elevated of a style, right? So we're having a gradation here. The highest style then uh, that you have in writing is something like prose. So you got this prose here that you're writing, the story, this beautiful thing that's, that has truth on multiple layers. Well, what's the most perfect version of prose? Poetry. Poetry is higher than prose. What's, what's higher than poetry? Sung poetry. Singing out the poetry is the highest form of language. That's why the Jews have an ancient tradition that they believe that God didn't merely speak, let there be light. He sung creation into existence. So whenever we're singing, that's why St. Augustine, it's that, it's that bad quote is when singing is praying twice. That's not exactly how the quote went. But what, what St. Augustine was getting out, what he's saying is like, whenever we sing, we are entering in with the choirs of angels offering glory to God because that's what the angels are doing. They're forever circling the throne of God, singing holy, 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 right? That's that thrice holy out of Isaiah, right? That's, that's uh, uh, for you guys who don't get that piece of what's happening in, in the liturgy, whenever, why we're saying holy, 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 or why things are like that, is in the Hebrew language, there are no comparatives or superlatives. You can't say somebody was fast, faster, or fastest, right? They don't have that. They just have like fast, right? So whenever you wanted to emphasize something, you would say it twice. So whenever, um, whenever uh, Eve says to the, to the snake in the, in the garden, she says, oh, God says that we should not eat of that apple or touch it, or we will surely die. That's what our language says. In the Hebrew, it doesn't say that. It's closer to like, we will die, die, right? We're going to die the death, if you have like a more, uh, a more um, like formal translation. We're going to die the death. So then that's, so something that is die the death, that's like a really bad death, right? That's why whenever you had the temple, you had the holy of holies, right? It's not just holy, it's very holy. That's why you have the angels circling around the throne of God saying, holy, 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 which is why we enter into that song of praise at mass. We are entering into to, to calling God the highest thing of holiness. God, you are perfect holiness. And we're gonna, we're gonna resound that throughout all of history with all of the angels. We're gonna enter into that song. It's not just about picking music that sounds pretty. That's not what it's about. It's not about picking music that we have preference to. It's about entering in to the worship. Is this song A, praising God, or is it praising myself? I, I, I struggle so much picking music for liturgy because most praise and worship songs that are out there are, are talking about me. It's some, some kind of, it's like, it's my relationship that matters here. But no, it's not, it's not about just praising God. It's missing that aspect. It's about what God's doing in my life, which there's a place for that. But liturgical worship is, is primarily about praising God. Holy, holy, holy. Right? So whenever we pick songs for liturgy, so I don't know if you guys have that opportunity ever, but if you, when you pick songs for liturgy, you're looking for the songs that, that are praising God and giving glory to God and trying to steer away from songs that, I don't know, have heresy in them, maybe. Like, let's try that. Let's, let's lower the bar a little bit. Let's just not pick songs that have heresy. And like, they're, but they're in the books. Yeah, but you know what? Don't use them. And then they will stop being in the books, right? They're, they're in the books because there's money to be made, okay? So just stop using the ones that are in the books that, that have heresy in them. This is literally how the Arian heresy was spread, right? It was through music and singing Arian songs 
uh, while people were traveling across the seas and all that stuff. Very, songs are portable catechisms, so let's make sure that they're accurate. Anyway, we won't talk about that anymore. David gets mad. All right. So scripture readings. All right. So now we're like, okay, well, scripture, right? This is, this is now, we were like, this, this part's for me, right? This is where I get to like pay attention and listen because God's speaking to me here. Yeah, there's a, there's a piece of that that's going there. But primarily, why are these scripture pieces chosen, right? Why does scripture exist in and of itself? Why are the books that are in the Bible, the books that are in the Bible and not other books? Like here, here's a great example. Like ever, anybody hear of the letter, the, um, the, the shepherd of Hermes? Anybody ever hear that of that letter before? No, first and second Clement, any, any, any of those letters? No, they're not in here. Although they were written around the same time of the apostles and some of these other writings, the Didache, anybody else? No, they're not in here. Why? Those were valuable tools, but they were never used in liturgy. That was the framework of what actually ends up in the Bible. The Bible is first and foremost a liturgical book before it is for our own personal edification. Now it's that too, Right? Because God gave it to us so that way we can read, know, and understand him. But God gave it to us for, for, to be used in liturgy first. So it's in liturgy first. So that's why whenever, whenever we are in liturgy and we, and we hear the, the readings of the, of the Gospels or the readings of, of the Old Testament, we, we give a, a, a doxology, we give a praise. Thanks be to God. Glory and praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. There's the doxology that's coming out of our mouths surrounding Scripture it's not meant to be like, we're not saying, oh, thank you, God. That was really personally edifying. No, we're saying, this is what you've done in history, Lord. Praise be to you. Praise be to you. We're announcing the history of the Lord. Praise be to you. That's what we're doing whenever we're coming to scripture. So what we, what we ought to do is we, we ought to look at the scriptures beforehand. You know, that's where we can get the personal edification out of so it's not, it's not about like how great the scripture reader is. Cause sometimes, I don't know if you guys have ever heard some of some lectors, we get some good ones. Yeah. But sometimes we just don't. Right. And that's just the way it is. But scripture is not there for your personal edification. It's an, it's a proclamation. That's why we proclaim the word. We're not just merely reading the word. We're proclaiming the word because this is what God has done in history. Thanks be to God. The only part of the liturgy that's kind of for your personal edification is the homily. That's it. Everything else is to give glory to God. The priest, like, it's, it's very clear, like, a liturgy that's, that's um, what, what you might call, like, ad orientum, one that's facing the, the cross or facing the, the sun rising in the east or something like that. Because there, really, the only time the priest ever turns around to talk to you as the, as the congregation is during the homily, <laughs> Right there, it's very clear. But here, we just have to kind of have to know, like, oh, this is the part where now he's going to take what was what was proclaimed, what God has done in history, and help me understand it for my life today. But that's the only part, right? And then so so we listen, and we we get from that as, as what we get from that, and then we move we move on. So literally, the the two things that people kind of hold as like what I call a good mass, whether the music is good or whether the homily is good. They're the least important things in the mass, right? That music is important, but it's accentuating what God has done. The homily is important, but really not that, not, not that much. But that's when we're like, this is a good mass because the joke was, was funny or the music was great or my personal preference has been met. That's not it, right? All right, so let's move on to postures. Okay, so postures. There are a bunch of postures in the mass. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's like a never-ending game of Simon Says where nobody wins, right? So, 
And, and people who are like, this is why the mass is not an evangelizing tool. We don't like, the, the goal is not like, I'm going to bring my Protestant friends to mass and then they'll, they'll be like, oh, I want to be Catholic now. No, they can be like, what the heck was that? Right? <laughs> I don't get it. You know, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. We're a lot up and down and nobody explained anything. And you're like, yeah, we do that. Well, there's reasons why we do that, right? <laughs> so, so let's talk about some of the postures at, at mass. So one of the most obvious postures at mass is kneeling. And people go back and forth behind this kneeling thing, right? Because sometimes you'll, you might even see people at our, at our parish who might come from other parishes that they don't, they don't kneel as much and they stand. And so they'll be at our, at our liturgy and they'll stand. Here's the really key thing in there, right or wrong or indifferent. Whatever parish you're at, whatever the standard that the pastor has set, that's how we worship at that parish. Because again, going back to the very beginning of this talk, right? It's play with particular rules so other people can enter into it. It's not about saying the prayers faster than the person next to me, although we've all met that person. It's not about singing louder than the person next to me or the harmony because I know it, right? (laughs) It's about, you know, participating in singing with the people. You're playing alongside with the people. So in a culture like where the priest says, this is when you kneel and this is when you sit, We do it with the people. Even if your own personal piety says, I like to stand here. This isn't your personal devotion. This is communal worship. We follow with the people. It gets really confusing when you go to arenas and like half the people are kneeling and half the people are standing. You're like, I don't know what to do. (laughs) Jesus, I want to follow your people, but your people are crazy and they're doing all kinds of things. I don't, I don't even know what that guy's doing over there. He's like halfway sitting and standing. I don't, I don't know. He's like in a permanent squat position because he doesn't know either. All right, I'm just going to do what he's doing. All right, no, uh, it's, this, is, this is the struggle. Like we got we to focus in on, on we want to do what the community is doing, right? So kneeling has always been a sign of humility and submission. That's the point. Whenever we're kneeling, we're saying, you are greater than I. You are master of me. We see that in the Old Testament when people would fall down at the feet of Jesus, right? That, that's, that, that's the, it's the position of the woman caught in adultery. She's at the feet of Jesus. It's, the, it's that falling down at the feet, saying, I'm not worthy. I'm a sinner. I'm broken. You were worthy alone, God. That's the, that's the, what, when we're kneeling, that's the posture that we're taking up. So we, when do we take that form? We take that form during the Eucharistic prayer, Right? During the Eucharistic prayer where heaven kisses earth and the, and the bread and wine are transubstantiated into the body and blood of Christ. Whenever God is present in the world, we take that position of kneeling. You can also take that position in your own personal prayers. I always recommend people to come a little bit early, prepare yourself to mass. You don't kneel down and pray or whatever. You know, that's, that's, a, that's you're offering yourself as humility and, and submission. You can literally not worship if you cannot offer yourself as, in humility and submission. Because if you can't offer yourself in humility, then you're saying that I'm the greatest, not God's the greatest, right? So that's what kneeling is for. Standing. Standing is the posture of reverence. Weird, right? Standing is also a posture of reverence. Kneeling obviously is a posture of reverence, but it's, a, it's the most formal posture of reverence. It's humility and submission. But we stand also for reverence. Standing is a great posture for, for prayer. Standing is a great posture, posture for blessing. So you notice that any time in liturgy, Whenever there's a blessing being given, we're either kneeling or standing. At the very end of, at the very end of Mass, whenever, whenever the priest is offering his, the final blessing, 
We're in the posture of standing, right? Even if it's like, even if it's like we've offered the, um, the after communion prayer and everybody's like in, in a seated position now. And then he says, okay, we got some announcements, right? Let's do some announcements. And then uh, they do all the announcements. And then the priest is going to be like, okay, stand up. And then he's going to give the final, the final blessing, right? And he gives the final blessing while you're standing. It's not so you can get, you know, now you're in a standing position. There's the door. That's not the point, right? The point is the proper, proper posture to receive a blessing is either kneeling or standing, not seated. So it's one of those confusing things also whenever you go to a liturgy with a bishop. And Gordon will get this one. When you go to a liturgy with the bishop, right, the, after the, you know, we are all standing for the gospel, right? Because sign of reverence, we're hearing the words of Christ. So we're standing for the sign of reference in the gospel reading, right? But then when a bishop is present and he says the gospel of the Lord, we say praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. You'll see everybody around you start to sit down except the priests and the other people who know what's going on. They're still standing. Why? Because there's an option for the bishop to bless the, commun- the community gathered with the book of the gospels. So he'll take the book of the gospels, the, the priest will always, or the deacon, whoever, is, whoever has, has just read the gospel, will take the book of the gospels, bring it over to the bishop. The bishop will reverence the book of the gospels like, by kissing it. Then he'll close it. And he has the option to offer a blessing with the book of the gospels to which we do this, right? Because we're Catholic, we make the sign of the cross, right? That's, that's what's being offered there. That's what we're doing. Right? But we do it in a standing position, not in a sitting position, because that's the appropriate position for receiving of a blessing. It's either standing or kneeling. Throughout all the Old Testament, whenever any of the fathers were blessing their children, the father might be sitting down, laying down, or nearly dead, but the child's either kneeling or standing because he's receiving the blessing from the father. That's what's, that's what's going on. Finally, sitting. Sitting is the, is the position that we take for reflection, it's also a position to take for learning. So that's why whenever the, the homily is happening, we sit because we're learning. We're, we're taking it in, right? But it's also for there for, for reflection. That's why we sit during the preparation of the gifts. The preparation of the gifts is the opportunity where what the people have brought together is now being offered at the altar. So it was really, it's really clear. Anybody ever go to like the Philippines or a third world country and, and uh, go, to, go to mass there? So yeah, some, some, of the, some of the churches in the Philippines or in other third world countries that when they go to mass, it's very clear that the preparation of the gifts is a time for the people to offer their stuff because that's literally when the people bring food and that food gets distributed to the community. Like I remember one of the most powerful liturgies I ever went to was in uh, the small village in Sarala in, in the South Cotabato, the Philippines, where like they didn't even have walls at this church, right? It was literally just kind of like pillars and a roof, okay? <laughs> and it was packed. And, and whenever the uh, preparation of the gifts comes up, I just kept seeing all this food being brought forward, right? They didn't have baskets to pass around money because ain't nobody got money down there, right? They were bringing food to share with the rest of the community. They're offering, right? And that's why over time that's, that we, we sit to offer maybe our physical offering, whether the basket's being in an affinitive uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Affluent uh, culture like the United States, baskets being passed around, we offer a sacrifice of money, right? People in third world countries offer a sacrifice of food. But also during that time, we reflect, Lord, where do I need to sacrifice in my life? Where do I need to offer you what is good that I'm not offering to you? How can I conform my life more perfectly to you? That's what we're doing in that time of sitting and reflecting, right? Right?
And finally, silence is the last thing I want to talk about here before we wrap up. So silence is extraordinarily important in liturgy. And um, it's back in, I think, 2007 or 2008, maybe it was 2011. It was probably 2011. Man, I can't remember any of these years. But back in 2011, whenever the third um, installment of the Roman Missal came out, do you guys remember that one? Some of the language of the, the Missal changed, right? There was meant to be an emphasis again on sacred silence. And you might've heard about that a little bit. We have like a moment of sacred silence before uh, the mass that, that takes place. But there are two, mar- two primary places in the liturgy where sacred silence is supposed to take place. And just depending, I mean, because we have such a big parish and so many masses, that those times are kind of short for us, but they're intentionally put in there. And so pay attention whenever you're at the mass. So the two times for, for sacred silence in the, in the liturgy as is, is a time after, after uh, the homily, so after the homily, the priest will sit. He's not just catching his breath, all right? It's a time for our reflection. And silence is always meant to be active reflection. It's not just be like, oh, you know, what do I got to do after this? What's for lunch? What's for dinner? You know, the, like thinking about, is that, it's not about flooding our mind with all the thoughts that are going on. We need to reflect on what's actually occurring. So when you reflect and say, okay, Lord, what stuck out to me at that homily? And what are you trying to tell me about my life? Yeesh, right? When we open that kind of question up to God, he does all kinds of things with him, right? The second time for written silence in there is after communion. I'm actually not, I know sometimes we do it, sometimes we don't. I'm not a big fan of the second communion song. Like when the first communion song is too short and like, oh, there's still people in the communion line. Let's have a second song. I mean, I get it. Like, uh, People don't, don't necessarily know what the silence is for and people aren't used to silence because we have one of these and we're entertained constantly 24-7. So people don't get the concept of silence, but I, I really think it should be in there. Having that period of silence after communion where we're kneeling or we're sitting depending on, depending on whether the Eucharist has been reposed or not. And we're in that moment of silence, in that prayerful moment. Again, it's not, about, it's not about filling our mind with random thoughts, filling in the silence, checking our, our text messages on our smartphone watch thing, right? That's not what that, that time period's for. I'm calling out my wife. <laughs> That's not what our time period's, that, what that time period's for. It's active reflection on you just receiving the God of the universe into your soul. There's a wonderful prayer that we're going to close with today. It's called the prayer after communion by St. Bonaventure my favorite after communion prayer. If you guys um, have never prayed it before or you know, want to look it up, you, you can. It's um, not really easily memorizable. It's kind of long, but it's a beautiful prayer that I like to pray after, the, uh, after receiving the Eucharist because it's just one of those times where like, I just want to give glory to God and my words suck, but you know whose words don't suck? St. Bonaventure. His words are great. You know, he expresses with, with his beautiful inspri- inspired words what I want to express but can't. Right? That's why the prayers of the saints are wonderful. So that's, that's what that period of silence is for. And in that spirit of silence, I'm going to go ahead and um, pray with you guys and just give us some time to kind of reflect. I'm going to, I'm going to pray that prayer from uh, St. Bonaventure. And what I'd like you guys to do is just kind of reflect on that prayer. And then we'll have a small conversation afterwards. And then I'll dismiss everybody. But here's a prayer of post-communion from St. Bonaventure. Let's pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pierce, O most sweet Lord Jesus, my inmost soul with the most joyous and healthful wound of thy love. 
with true, serene, and most holy apostolic clarity that my soul may ever languish and melt with love and longing for you, that it may yearn for thee and faint for thy courts and long to be dissolved and to be with thee. Grant that my soul may hunger after you, the bread of the angels, the refreshments of holy souls, our daily and super substantial bread, having all sweetness and savor and every delight of taste. Let my heart ever hunger after and feed upon thee, upon whom the angels desire to look. And may my inmost soul be filled with the sweetness of thy savor. May it ever thirst after thee, the fountain of life the fountain of wisdom and knowledge, the fountain of eternal light, the torrent of pleasure, the richness of the house of God. May it ever encompass thee, seek thee, find thee, run to thee, attain to thee, meditate upon thee, speak to thee, and do all things to the praise and glory of thy name. With humility and discretion, with love and delight, with ease and affection, and with perseverance until the end. May you alone be ever my hope, my entire assurance, my riches, my delight, my pleasure, my joy, my rest and tranquility, my peace, all that charms me, my fragrance, my sweetness, my food, my refuge, my refreshment, my help, my wisdom, my portion, my possession, and my treasure. In whom may my mind and my heart be fixed and firm and rooted immovably forever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, hey, hey.